Acts chapter 1, and I will begin with a question, because this is, this is Sunday school, right, which means we can interact. Uh, actually, when I was pastoring a little church in Tampa, Florida with Hispanics, they didn't know you're not supposed to talk to the preacher while he's talking, so they did. And at first, I'm like, no, 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 you can't. And I thought, well, why can't you do that? And uh, it was actually pretty good feedback because I knew if they understood, they'd just send them and say, what, what, what? And they'd ask a question. I actually really kind of like that. I know it's not the normal style, custom, whatever. But um, at any rate, for Sunday school, at least we can do that. So let's look in Acts chapter 1. And here's my question as we get started. What is the last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he went back to heaven? Okay, so we think of the Great Commission, right? Going to, that is not the last thing Jesus said to his disciples. I'm sorry, but it's not. No, 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 no. Everywhere I go, I've heard this preached countless times. Jesus' last words, they're not. The last words are in Acts chapter 1. You say, how do you know that? Because we're going to look at Acts 28 in the morning service. That's in Galilee. Acts chapter 1 is in Jerusalem. These are two separate occasions. They're not just two versions of the same uh, situation. These are two different occasions. So the actual ascension into heaven takes place in Acts chapter 1. And so I want to read that story, actually read the first uh, maybe 10 or 11 verses of this. You follow along as I read. It says in verse 1 of Acts 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons, that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Ye men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So, This second writing, this second work of the the New Testament writer Luke is uh, what we know as the book of Acts. So he writes the gospel of Luke, that's his first work, and now he's writing the narrative of what happens after Jesus 
raises from the dead. And so uh, apparently Luke is, um, he talks about a guy named Theophilus. Some have questioned, is that an actual person, Theophilus? Simply means lover of wisdom, and that's the, the Greek word, lover of, or lover of God, Theophilus. Um, so is, he, is that just an idea for everybody who loves God, or is this a patron? It probably actually was a patron. That was the guy's actual name. And he's probably funding Luke. Luke, you can have time to write all this stuff down. And how are you going to live while you're just busy writing? So I'll, I'll pay for it. So that's probably what that means. He's writing it for a guy named Theophilus. But it benefits us because it's spirit-inspired writing. And it gives us the story. So even according to Luke's own terms here in Acts chapter 1, the first part of the chapter, the first volume, the Gospel of Luke, he writes to tell us the story of Jesus from his birth to his resurrection. The second part, he begins with uh, Jesus after the resurrection and tells us the story of the church. How does the church come to be? By the time Luke is writing this, the church exists in all parts of the Roman Empire. So how did that happen? There's a lot of theological import to what takes place in Luke and all that, but I want to just look this morning in this very first several paragraphs at what Jesus is trying to communicate to his disciples. So let's, let's look and see. It says that after Jesus had risen from the dead, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. So, um, after Jesus is raised from the dead, he demonstrates the reality of his resurrection. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the, in the service to follow. But Jesus proves that he was alive. In fact, according to this, it's many infallible proofs. Um, and now he had already spoken to his disciples in Galilee. So when he rose from the dead, he said, tell my disciples to meet me in Galilee He shows himself to them a few times in Jerusalem, the day of the resurrection, maybe a week after the resurrection, again. Then they go down to Galilee. He meets them there. That's where we have what we know as the Great Commission passage. And then they're back in Jerusalem, apparently at Jesus' command. doesn't say that specifically, but they come all back to Jerusalem, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is speaking with them a final time. And he... He, um, he's talking to them according to verse, um, what verse is that? Verse um, 3, about the kingdom of God. So here's my next question. After the resurrection, Jesus for 40 days talks to his disciples about the kingdom of God. What was he talking to his disciples about before the resurrection? How would you summarize what you know from the Gospels of Jesus teaching to his disciples. Don't think too deeply. The answer is, he was talking about the kingdom of God. So basically, he's continuing what he had been doing, saying the kingdom is like, this is, what it's, this is what's coming, this is what is, and this is what's coming. Now, I'm not going to get into all the issues of the kingdom of God here. There's a whole spectrum of, understanding of what it, what constitutes the kingdom of God, how much of that is future, how much of that is present. I'll leave that to your pastor because he has to deal with that from week to week. And if I raise any kind of funky ideas, 
and he has to deal with that later. So I'll leave that alone. Um, and, and the disciples come to him then with a question in verse 6. Jesus says, okay, in a few days you're going to, um, you, I want you to stay in Jerusalem and you're going to get the promise from the Father that you heard from me uh, about the, the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Actually, that promise appears throughout the Old Testament in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. It appears from the lips of John. It appears from the lips of Jesus in the Gospels. And this was always portrayed as something better is still to come. There's more still to come. And so Jesus said, okay, stay in Jerusalem and wait because what you've been promised from the Old Testament as well as from John the Baptist as well as from me, it's about to take place. And we know that in chapter 2 of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, that promise was fulfilled and the Holy Spirit began to work in and through his disciples in ways that went beyond the way the Spirit of God worked in the Old Testament. So then in verse 6, they came together and they asked him a question. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel. So what do you do with that question? Why would the disciples ask, Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What do you think? Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So what were the disciples expecting even before the crucifixion? What, were, what was their hope and expectation? Yeah, Jesus is going to set up an earthly kingdom, going to bash those Romans, going to restore the kingdom of David. We're going to be at the center of it. Was that a, was that, were they completely misguided? No, I mean, the Old Testament promised those things. Who, where did they get this idea that they were going to sit on 12 thrones and rule the tribes of Israel? Jesus told them that. He didn't say when, but they got that idea from Jesus. Then Jesus is crucified, and they're totally, I mean, talk about depression, right? You see those two disciples in road to Emmaus? Oh, man, we thought he was going to fix everything, and now he's dead. And they were so confused and disillusioned. And as you said, now there's a resurrection. Christ appears in his glory. Surely, now is the time. We thought it was before, but clearly it's now. This is a fair question, right? And in fact, who's been talking about the kingdom of God for 40 days? Jesus. So don't be too hard on the disciples with this question. But Jesus' response is, ah, don't worry about that. Right? I mean, if it were the vernacular, Jesus would say, okay, you know, cool your jets, guys. Do you still say that? Is that still a thing? You know, chill. Jesus does not say there is no kingdom of God. This gets into premillennial or dispensationalism, covenant, whatever. I'm leaving that alone, too. Jesus does not say no kingdom. But he said, what you're wanting is not what I'm offering now. And so the disciples, you know, they were, they were looking forward to power. They were looking forward to political 
control, which is what human beings throughout history strive for, right? Which is what far too often we look to as being the hope of the church or the hope of Christianity. How much political influence can we exert? How much kingdom control is in our hands? And Jesus says, no. And what Jesus says next is really the only specific statement from the lips of Jesus about how the kingdom expansion in this age, in this era, in this period of grace, if you will, how this is going to work. This is Jesus' blueprint. This is Jesus' plan A for how the gospel is going to gain victory in the world around us. And by the way, there is no plan B. And so when Jesus looks at his disciples and they ask this question, are we now going to have that kingdom you promised us? And Jesus straightforwardly says, no. In fact, you need to stop worrying about times and seasons. And then he says, but, however, there is something else. So if my kids come to me and say, Dad, my kids don't do this now because they're grown. They don't live with me anymore. But when my kids were at home and they say, Dad, can I borrow the car? I might say, no, but you can ride your bicycle. Or, Dad, can I have $50? No, but here's $10, whatever. So when you say, but, it's an alternative. It's something other than what you planned. And in this case, something even better. So this passage, Acts 1.8, we look at as a commission passage. And if we want to be technical, it really is not a commission passage in the same sense as the other commission passages. Jesus is actually not commanding his disciples to do anything. He is predicting to them what is about to take place. So let's look at that again in verse 8. Jesus says, no to your thoughts of the kingdom of God, no to your expectation of power, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That promise that takes fulfillment in chapter 2 or begins to unfold in chapter 2. And you will be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So, um, grammatically, I'm not going to get wonky on you, I promise, but grammatically, if you look at the sentence, or verse 8, in the original language, you have this simple future tense construction. So, future tense would be something like, I mean, you know this, be something like, after the service this morning, we will have lunch. It's not commanding you to have lunch. It's just saying, we're going to have lunch. So when Jesus says, you will receive power, he's not commanding them to receive power. In fact, the disciples had no control over that coming Holy Spirit power. It was something done to them or for them, not something they did for themselves. And so when Jesus says, you will receive power, 
Then he says, you will be my witness. It is exactly the same construction. In fact, the same words used um, for most of the sentence in the original language. So Jesus is saying, you're going to be my witnesses. Why are you going to be his witnesses? Because you're going to receive power. Okay, so I want you to stop and think about this. If you've been in church any length of time, either intentionally or, we hope, not intentionally, but incidentally, in other words, it just happens, sometimes we feel guilty that we're not really being the kind of witness we should be. How many of you would admit to that? There are times we just feel like, man, I'm dropping the ball, right? Now, I've been in plenty of services where I've been made to feel that way on purpose. Um, And maybe sometimes that's not a bad thing. Now, if you get a steady diet of that, it can be pretty stressful and maybe not very productive. But, But it's true that most of us are not everything we... We, we recognize we should be or could be in terms of our gospel witness. Um, why is that? Yeah. Okay, that's a good reason. Or maybe not a good reason, but uh, a transparent, honest reason. We're selfish. We're more concerned about ourselves than we are about people around us. What else? Yeah, we're afraid. I mean, that person might think we're a kook or a cultist, or dangerous. Or they might just reject us, like maybe it's a family member, and they might not want to talk to us after that. What else? Okay, guilt. Maybe we don't feel like we're worthy. We know there's things in our lives that don't quite measure up, and we don't feel worthy to be sharing Jesus with somebody else. Anything else? I'm sorry? Okay, maybe we're shamed. We think this message might sound silly or might, you know, we, we just don't want to talk about this. And, and to be fair, you know, in America, um, we say we don't talk about religion or politics, but for some reason, everybody talks about politics, right? Uh, but we don't talk about religion all that much. We don't talk about our personal faith. Um, when I, I've asked this, this question to students many times, at, uh, when I teach at Bob Jones. And one of the things they frequently say is we, just, we feel like we just don't know what to say. We don't know enough. And I'm going to tell you that all of those are fair and legitimate, but all of those sort of fall away in light of what Jesus just said. Jesus says, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be a witness for me. You will. And I want to suggest to you this morning that the main reason we're not witnesses for Jesus Christ is we're not filled with the Spirit. I'm not saying we don't have the Spirit. I'm not saying we're not believers. I'm not saying we're, we're lost. I'm just saying we're not actively being filled by the Spirit of God. I want to tell you a story about the time when I was a pastor. I mentioned some of this yesterday. Little Spanish church, Iglesia Bautista Jesus Salva, Jesus Saves Baptist Church. Tampa, Florida. We had a lady in our church named Maria. Maria de Leon. Uh, I had a friend who worked for narcotics division of the Tampa police. He went to the American church that we started out of as a mission. And a good, solid Christian believer named Pete. 
And Pete would occasionally mention to me his family. His father had been a senator in Cuba, was forced to flee when Castro came to power. The family ended up in Miami. His father died not too long after that. Um, His brother uh, was never a believer, never came to Christ. His mom was not saved. Pete didn't come to faith until after, I think after he got married and heard the gospel and he and his wife were converted. They ended up in Tampa. Pete was burdened for his mom. And his mom uh, had issues. She she was a, a brilliant woman. The only person I think I've ever met who actually had a PhD in philosophy. So a, a doctor of philosophy in philosophy. You didn't want to argue with Maria. You were never going to win. Brilliant woman. And um, she had been an Olympian. She swam for Cuba in the Olympics in the 50s, I think. And she was, she was, uh, and she was uh, very, let's just say she was about the most arrogant person I've ever met. And um, Maria in Miami had gone through several jobs, but she ended up being the personal secretary for the Archbishop of the Catholic Diocese of Miami. Uh, But Maria was an alcoholic, and she abused drugs, prescription drugs, and she was a mess. And Pete would beg her, Mommy, please come to Tampa, live with us, go to Alcoholics Anonymous, start your life. Of course, he wanted her to hear the gospel, but he was concerned that she, for her survival. And finally, she hit a low, and she came to Tampa, and Pete started talking to her about the gospel, and he convinced her to come visit our church. And I'll never forget the morning Maria walked into our Sunday school. There were about 35 or 40 of us there. And Maria walked in the doorway and just stood there and looked at us. She literally stood there like this. Just looked us over. Took her time. And then she raised her finger and she said, My name is Maria de Leon. I have come here today as an emissary of His Holiness, the Archbishop of the Diocese of Miami, to rescue you poor, ignorant Protestants from your delusions. I said, thank you very much. You know, what do you say to that? Have a seat. I don't remember what I was teaching. It doesn't really matter. But the minute I'd say anything, Maria would jump to her feet, wave that finger, and say, the catechism says this, and she had that catechism memorized. I mean, that's about 800 pages, the current at the time catechism. She, ha- she knew every word of it, and she would just quote it. Now, what do you do with that? I'll tell you what I did. I said, I didn't know that. Tell us more. And I just let her go on. And after she, you know, after she, she had her say, I'd say, wow, Maria, that's amazing. And I didn't know all that, and it's amazing that you know all that. Let's look at what the Bible says. And we did that. I mean, it was slow going, but we did that for months. One night, Maria calls. It was a Saturday afternoon. It was about 5 o'clock. Maria calls, and she says, Oye, Marcos, this is Maria. I've made dinner for you and Cari. It will be served at 6 o'clock. And my wife says, who was that? I said, it was Maria. What did she want? She's had, having dinner for us at 6 o'clock. Oh, Maria's invited us to dinner. I said, I don't think it was an invitation. (laughs) We've been summoned. So we went, and we, you have to understand, 
So if you've ever been around Middle Easterners, you know, a Middle Easterner cannot talk with his hands in his pocket. Not possible. Cubans are the same way. I mean, oh, it's just all over. And I had adapted to that. I mean, I was ministering in that environment. We didn't have only Cubans in our congregation, but at least half, more than half were. And I, and I was married to a Cuban. And so, you know, the whole family thing. And I had adapted. And so Marie and I, were having dinner, but we're across the table in each other's face. And, we're, and it's, it's, if you would have been there, you would have thought it was, you know, World War III. It looks like an argument, but it's just a normal discussion. The first time I met Carrie's family, I mean, I'm, I'm, this, I'm this cracker from Illinois. And here I am, the whole family's there. And her dad starts saying something, and her brother jumps up in the middle of the room and starts, no, no. And, and I don't understand any Spanish at this point. And then the sister's on her feet, and everybody's on their feet. And Carrie's sitting there, and I'm just like, and I don't know what's going on. I said, what's the fight about? And she said, they're not fighting, they're talking about the weather. <laughs> True story. And, and so that's, that's, that's having a conversation with a Cuban. And so, not all Cubans, I don't want, to make, I don't want you to be afraid now to talk to my wife. <laughs> But this went on. Dinner started at 6. Ten, by 10 o'clock, I'm tired. I mean, we'd been all around that house, you know. And I said, Maria, i got to go home. I'm, I'm tired. She said, I have one more question. I said, okay, one more, and then I'm leaving. She said, if everything you keep saying is true, I'm not really a Christian. I don't even know God, and I'm on my way to hell. I said, Maria, I have never said anything to you except to show you over and over and over again what the Bible says. Your, your issue is with the Bible. And she started crying. And she says, I want Jesus to save me. Right now. And I mean, no prompting. She fell to her knees. She asked Jesus to save her. And I cannot begin to tell you the radical transformation. I came into church one morning I heard a noise in the bathroom. I went in. There's Marie on her hands and knees. I said, Marie, what are you doing? She says, I'm cleaning the floor. I said, the floor was already cleaned. She looked up with tears in her eyes. She says, but I want to do something for Jesus. This was this arrogant, proud woman is now re-cleaning the floor just because she wants to do something for Jesus. And I won't take more time to tell you lots of stories except this one. She calls me one afternoon. She says, oye, Marcos. How do I give the gospel to a Jewish rabbi? I'm like, um, let's talk about this after church on Sunday morning. Because I'm thinking, I don't know. I'm going to have to look this up. I'm going to you know, go back to my notes from college. And I, off the top of my head, I, she said, I can't wait till then. He's here now. I said, what? She says, I'm with the rabbi. I said, what? Where are you? I'm at the laundromat. And I said, wait, wait, back up. That, just a week ago, you bought a new washer-dryer. I came to your house and set it up and made sure it was working okay. Does it already not work? She says, Marcos, there are no lost people in my laundry room, but there are lost people here. That was Maria. Apparently, she had gone, taken some laundry, waited for the, the this guy was from out of town. He was visiting somebody. This, this rabbi is in the laundry mat. As soon as he puts his clothes in the wash, she moves in. And the poor guy, I don't know what he was thinking. But I'm telling her stuff on the phone. She's telling the rabbi, I don't know whatever came of that. But that was Mary. Where did she get all that zeal? That woman was filled with the Holy Spirit. I remember she walked into church one day, and our deacon, he says, a little short guy named Roberto, 
He says, oh, Maria, it's so nice to see that you're so happy and you're so in love with Jesus. But it won't take long and you'll, it will cool off and you'll be just like the rest of us. And I'm like, no. She's normal. We're the ones who are broken. Because when the Spirit of God filled those disciples, the world began to change. I've seen this, folks. I've seen this, I've seen this in places you wouldn't expect, like China. I've been in prayer meetings in China where I really thought we were going to have a rushing mighty wind. And people are, I mean, they're so zealous to share their faith. I was on an airplane one time. This guy sits down next to me. He's a Chinese guy. His English is all broken. He starts witnessing to me. And I told him, I'm a Christian. He says, okay, I'll sit somewhere else. He goes somewhere else. He's looking for an unbeliever. And I notice here's a woman. And it turns out it's his wife. And they're just finding a place on the plane to sit so they can witness to somebody during the flight. I tell you, folks, when you're like that, the gospel is going to flow forward. I've seen this in India. I've seen this in other parts of the world where we're seeing this right now in parts of the Middle East. There are more Muslims who have come to faith in the last 30 years than in all the centuries of Islam combined because there are people who are being filled with the Spirit of God. So here's Jesus' blueprint. Here's Jesus' plan. How are you going to reach the world? How are you going to spread the gospel? Be filled with my spirit. So what does that mean? That means that you're submissive to him, you obey him, you seek him. And I know you can go too far with that. I know that can get carried away. I know I'm not promoting, you know, tongues and glossolalia and all the charismatic stuff. I'm not. But I'm saying somehow we're so concerned that we don't get a little bit too enthusiastic that we're content to just kind of go through with a cultural Christianity that doesn't rock anybody's boat. But when the Spirit of God came upon these people, it rocked their boat. It rocked the whole world. And so Jesus tells them, here's what it's going to look like. The Spirit of God's going to come upon you and you will receive power. And you will be my witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? Well, we looked at that word last night. It can mean to testify to someone, even to the point of death. And most of these men in the place that Jesus is speaking would end up as martyrs. But it also meant that until that time, they spent all their waking hours thinking about Jesus. If I'm a witness to someone, I'm talking about that person. I'm thinking about that person. I'm saying what they would say. In fact, basically what happens when the Spirit of God fills you is he makes you like Jesus. So that when you're talking to someone, it's as if Jesus is talking to that person. You're thinking Jesus' thoughts. You're living Jesus' life. Not miraculous, not supernatural, but you are living under the influence and power of the Spirit of God that makes you like Jesus. Think about this, folks. At the, at the end of this passage, Jesus goes back into heaven. Why does Jesus go back into heaven? I mean, think about it. Who would be better poised to share the gospel message than the resurrected Son of God? You know, he could have done this any way he wanted. He could have stood on clouds and preached in a, in a voice that nations could hear. He could have spent a hundred years in Israel, and then the next hundred years in Syria, and then the next hundred years, he could have moved around the globe spreading the gospel himself. He could have 
invented the internet, you know, in the first century. He could have done whatever he wanted. But he chose to fill his disciples with his spirit and turn them loose. And it worked. And it still works. And it's still the only plan Jesus has for establishing his kingdom. So one more thought, and our time is about up. I'm telling you that what takes place in verse 8, I mean, you can, I'm not trying to take it away from you if you want to call it a commission passage. It has that net effect, but technically it's not a command, it's a promise. So is there any command here? Actually, there is. And you probably read right by it. It says in verse 4, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait. That doesn't sound very spiritual. That doesn't sound very awe-inspiring. But you know what? They did. Verse 12 says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Part of the the key, part of the ingredient of true spirit power is very simple obedience. That's where we stumble, folks. Jesus says, he gives them one simple command, go back to Jerusalem and wait. And they did. In fact, all through the entire book of Acts, what you see, there's I know there's a whole lot of different ways to read the book of Acts, but what I see is spirit-filled people who do exactly what Jesus says. And there's no limit to what he will do through people like that. No limit. Eleven men, twelve men, and I won't get into how many apostles, but Paul was an apostle. Barnabas is called an apostle. Timothy is actually even called an apostle at one point. I'll let your pastor sort that one out too. But a handful of men changed the world. Jesus could change Limerick, Pennsylvania with just the people in this room. Could turn it upside down. Part of the question is, are we willing in the simple little ordinary things in life just to say yes? Yes, Lord. That's Jesus' plan for the kingdom of God in this age. And we can be a part of it. He invites us to join him, be filled with his spirit, and be his witnesses. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these folks. Thank you for the word of God, the simplicity of Jesus' words to his disciples, the magnitude of what it looked like for them to simply submit And follow the leading of the Spirit day by day, week by week, year by year. And to see Christ build his church. In the case of some of those apostles, it took them far away from home. And for some who follow the leading of your Spirit, may take them to the ends of the earth. But for all of us, it will make us like Jesus... It will give us a voice and it will make us useful to you so that we become witnesses for him wherever we go. 
We ask that it will be so in his name. Amen.